How's y'all's week so far? Good? And tonight, y'all know? Second Kings. Okay. Um, I just want to wave reminder. I think Tim did a fantastic job last week. Um, and he reminded us of some passages from the Old Testament I think are important for us to keep in mind as we read through the Old Testament narrative. Again, Josh mentioned at the very first one of these uh, Emmaus Road series when he taught Genesis that when Adam sinned in the fall, we're looking for the serpent crusher. We find that in Genesis 3. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. When he calls Abraham, he tells him to go from his country and your kindred into your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he ratifies this covenant in Genesis 15 with Abraham and he does so with the, um, Tim mentioned it last week, it's that kind of weird scene where God tells Abraham to bring these animals, and without prompting, he cuts the animals in half and lays them over against each other. Abraham falls asleep, he gets a dream, and he sees a vision of a flaming torch and a smoking pot that pass between the pieces, ratifying the covenant with Abraham. This passage, Hebrews 6, says about this very passage that, that he mentions in Genesis 15, he says, for when, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. There is a greater promise that we could have than the one that he made with Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham, and it cannot be broken because he is both the covenant maker and the sealer. Genesis 49.10 we read of the first kind of Jacob as he blesses his 12 sons when he comes to Judah. He blesses Judah and tells him, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here's the first kind of indication of a, of a kingly line and a kingly promise that will rule and reign forever. And it is made to Judah. And again, we don't know much about Abraham before he called before God before God called Abraham, other than where he was from and who his dad was. But we know quite a bit about Judah, and Judah was not an impressive guy. You read the um, Genesis of uh, of Jacob and his sons. Judah's not somebody that you would think this promise would be made. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God, again, here we continue to progress, and this uh, kingly promise is made to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he will raise up a descendant after you and come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, this entire series has been, we're wanting to take all of Scripture, like Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, where he opened up for the disciples and he showed them all of the things concerning himself. 
Well, all of these things are concerning Jesus. Um, Deuteronomy 28 is another key passage from the Old Testament for us to remember. God gives commands to his people in the wilderness. This is on the back end of the wilderness wanderings, and they are about to take. He's killed off the generation of 40, uh, 40 years, and they are getting ready to actually go into the promised land. So he gives a second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, and he gives blessings for obedience, and he lays out curses for disobedience. We need to keep those in mind because they come into play as we read through the Old Testament narrative. And again, while these passages um, are important, they're certainly not exhaustive. Um, so as we get ready to get into the book of Second um, Kings, I want to mention that the First Kings that Tim covered last week and Second Kings that I've got this week... In the Hebrew Bible, that's one book. It's one book. The books of Samuel that we have separated into and the books of Chronicles that we have separated into, they're one book in the Hebrew Bible. And it's helpful for me to help me understand and follow the narrative from the opening of 1 Kings to the close of 2 Kings. Frame of 300. a long time. 385 years ago would have been roughly 1637. Anybody know what happened in 1637? Anything? Around that time? Huh? Oh, no. 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 Hey! You've been out of school a minute, haven't you? No, uh, I just looked just, just for, just um, out of curiosity, I just did a quick Google search. Some of the first founders to this country or first um, European settlers settled in Delaware in the year 1638. So that's roughly that far back. That's a long time is what I'm trying to get. As we read through the Old Testament narrative, it doesn't take us very long to cover the stories that are unfolded for us that God has preserved for us in His Word, but we, we can lose track of the fact that a great amount of time of the story. So I said, I think it's a good thing for us to remember because we will see they keep sinning and they keep doing the same things and you go, you, when will they learn? Well, it, it's, 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 a, it, it's a great amount of time that it that passes. Um, before I read, we're going to get into the book now. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to start in 2 Kings chapter 1. Let me pray for us, and, um, and then I'll read from 2 Kings. Father, I thank you for these students, for the opportunity to teach. Pray, Father. Um, you will enable me to communicate clearly that you will be glorified spent here this evening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he didn't them 
Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall But the angel of God said to Elijah, the arise and go to meet the messengers of the king of there is no God in Israel going to inquire of Beelzebub, God of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Elijah goes, and he finds uh, the messengers, and he repeats what the angel of the Lord told him. Um, and again, just kind of a, an aside, when the Bible mentions an angel or a angel of the Lord, it is likely just an angelic messenger or being. Often when it says the angel of the Lord appears, it is a Christophany or a pre, kind of a, the second person of the Godhead. It is Jesus that appears and tells them. So he goes and tells them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to seek Beelzebub, that is a foreign god. Ekron is a Philistine, uh, a city in Philistine. It's a foreign god. And they, uh, the king of Israel, is inquiring of this god of whether he will get better or if he will die from this illness. So he goes and he t asks him, is it because there is no god in Israel? Well, is there a god in Israel? Absolutely, there's a God in Israel. He has shown himself to them uniquely and powerfully for generations. This shows the wickedness of their rebellion. So as we continue, the messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about the waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed, consumed him and his fifty. This pattern repeated itself again. Sends another messenger with another, with another fifty men, the same question was asked, the same response was given by Elijah, and fire comes from heaven and consumed them all. In verse 13, sent the captain of, of a third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of the be precious in Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal's above the God of 
God is because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word. Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became uh, king in his place. Ahaziah did not rule very long. He's Again, he was Ahab's son. But you see the posture, this repetition of the third time. What was the response of the messenger that came to Elijah the third time? He fell on his knees. What does that symbolize? It's, 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 yes, it's, he's casting himself upon Elijah and the God with whom Elijah represents. It is a humble bowing to him rather than the demanding of prior two uh, messengers, uh, 50 men that came and were consumed. Now I want to contrast that with the next story that starts in and when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven now this this story just ends and boom chapter 2 this is what we hear by Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal for the Lord has sent me but Elisha said as the Lord lives and as you yourself live I will not leave you. So they went to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. He repeats this to Jericho, the same thing. Do you know that your master will be taken from you today? His response, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then he says it again, Elisha, he's going to go to the Jordan. But he says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men, there's that number 50 again, of the prophets distance from them. Now the sons of the prophets are just kind of a, a school. We don't know the sons of the prophets is my prophets. Himself, but that's that's the fifty that he's talking about, sons of the prophets. And both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and stuck it in the struck it, struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and uh, and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said, to Elijah, Elijah said to Elisha. Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, as I am being taken you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, the of fire separated the two of them. Up by whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So Elijah doesn't die. He is in a whirlwind to heaven. The contrast that we get from these two chapters, you get the 50 sons of the prophets, and you get the 50 
messengers or the 50 men with the messengers, they are consumed by the wrath of God in fire. They are consumed, which means they're not, there's nothing left of them. But Elisha is taken by chariots of fire. He is translated into And Elijah, Elisha is going to take, because he, what did he tell him? He asks him for a double portion of his spirit. And what did Elijah say? If you see me when I'm taken, then it shall be so for you. And it said, Elisha saw it and he cried. So Elisha is going to take the mantle. Again, it, it goes on and said that Elisha, Elisha, these are tough, Elijah and Elisha, uh, picks up his cloak, strikes the Jordan, and crosses back over the Jordan. Elijah being taken into heaven in this manner, prefigure, it foreshadows, it prefigures Christ and his ascension back into heaven. Elijah as a prophet of God, that's what this is prefiguring. Again, we're trying to show you Christ in, in, as we um, read through these um, Old Testament narratives. So you've got parallels here also Elijah and Elisha are at the Jordan. He parts the Jordan River. He goes across the Jordan River. Elijah is taken. Elijah, Elisha strikes the Jordan again after he's taken, and he passes back over and again on dry ground. You look at Joshua and Moses, Specifically, Joshua, as they enter the promised land, how did they cross the Jordan? Do you all remember how they crossed the Jordan? The same way. They, draw, they, they cross the Jordan on dry ground. The waters divide, much like the Dead Sea with Moses. They go through on dry ground. This is, again, parallels that we see with Elijah, uh, Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. We also see um, let me back up. Um, as Elisha um, takes the mantle from Elijah, Tim told us the story last week from 1 Kings 19 of the prophets of Baal and Elijah uh, on the mountain and they consumes the altar and he slaughters the, uh, kills all the prophets of Baal. Well, what Elijah did after that was he receives word that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, seeks to uh, kill Elijah in the same manner that he killed the prophets of Baal. So he flees to Mount Horeb, and he's in a cave in Mount Horeb. And while there, God appears to Elijah. And again, we see the parallels as he... Uh, speaks to Elijah from the cave in 1 Kings 19. He said, and, the, uh, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. On Mount Sinai, God appeared to Moses 
and wind and earthquake and fire. But when he appears to Elijah in Mount Horeb, he appears in a whisper. And he gives Elijah a command here uh, in this cave at Mount Horeb. And he tells him, go back to the wilderness And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So he tells him these things. So we're going to go back again to 2 Kings. And immediately leaving when he departs the cave is when he sees Elisha. And he puts his cloak on Elisha, and Elisha follows him, and he is his student and his disciple. But the two people he told to anoint kings, one was Hazael over Syria. It's not uncommon for the prophets to anoint kings, but it was very unusual for them to anoint foreign kings. But Hazael would be the king of Syria, it would be a foreign king that he would be anointing. So as he returns, again, that's just to set where we are, that Elisha has taken the mantle, and as we progress through the rest of this book of 2 Kings, uh, Hazael and Jehu will be kind of key figures along with Elisha. And there is no distinction As you read, again, we're not going to talk about it, but as you read, he tells Elijah to anoint Hazael. Elijah is taken away, uh, is taken to heaven before that actually happens. It will be Elisha that actually anoints Hazael to be king, but there's no distinction. Um, And also we have seen, again, in these passages, God revealing His pleasure and His wrath in fire by consuming the men. It harkens back and it looks back. It reminds you of um, in Leviticus 9 and 10 when Moses and Aaron, Aaron has just been anointed, the priest over Israel, and he makes a sacrifice and fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And God, it's, it's, it's God's way of accepting his sacrifice. Now, there has to be atonement for sin. Why was the priestly, or why was the sacrificial system set up to begin with? Sin is a problem and it has to be dealt with. And you have to offer sacrifice. But you have to offer the sacrifice in the prescribed manner that God has laid out. They, he does so, and fire from heaven comes and burns it up, accepting the sacrifice. In the very following chapter, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer unauthorized sacrifice on the altar, and God's wrath consumes Nadab and Abihu. So again, that's what we're looking at. God's wrath or his acceptance, his appearance. He is, his appearance is in the fire, and, and, and his power is in the fire. It is his presence that consumes. It, it, it shows us that we cannot stand on our own in the presence of God. We cannot do it. 
We need a mediator. And those that offer unauthorized sacrifice, those that are wicked, those, um, again, the men that we saw were going to inquire of a foreign god as to whether he would get better or not. They were consumed because they offered, they did it in an unworthy manner. They ignored the fact that God is God of Israel and he has protected them and they have ignored that and God consumes them. So again, in Deuteronomy 24.4, it says the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Is it, is it sinful for God to be jealous? No. <laughs> no. No. Because there's no one greater than him. So his jealousy is, if we elevate anything over and above him, he has right to be jealous because we have placed um, undue um, attention on um, something other than him. So we're going to proceed... In 2 Kings 3, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, didn't have any sons, so Jehoram, son of Ahab, brother of Ahaziah, became king in Israel. We're going to read in 3, 1 through 3, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 3, in the 18th year of, Jehosh of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made sin, and he did not depart from it. This refrain, there's a couple that you will see in the books of the kings. As it introduces a different king, whether in Israel or in Judah, it will say he did what was pleasing or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this also, this refrain concerning Israel was, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. So what is the sin of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam is found in 1 Kings 12. We'll read it real quick, but essentially what Jeroboam does is he creates a cult. Remember, this is the king of Israel. Um, God has prescribed the ways to worship him in his, in his law. So in verse 25 of chapter 12 of 1, Kings, it says, then for him and lived there. And he went to and Jeroboam, now the king, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people sacrifice, will turn Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the other he put in Dan. 
Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made the temples on the high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were of the Levites, who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the, to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is the sin of Jeroboam. He creates an idol for them to worship. He does not want them to turn back. He fears for his life, but he creates a cult for himself, and he causes the people to sin. He creates high places, and they offer sacrifices to the calves, these golden calves that he made. That's the sin of Jeroboam. And again, I didn't count it as I read through this, but this refrain is repeated over and over and over again. That these kings followed the sin of Jeroboam. So, as we go back and point out again, Elisha anoints Hazael, king over Syria, like, his, uh, like Elijah was told by God to do. And Elijah, uh, sorry, lost my place. Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, launches a siege at Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And you find this in uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. The, the siege of Samaria is begun by Ben-Hadad uh, from Syria. And Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom's capital is Samaria. So Syrian's king, Ben-Hadad, launches a siege against Israel. Israel's sins are about to, um, they're about to come to a head and they are going to be led into captivity by the Syrians. But there's a, uh, this story of Ben-Hadad's siege in Samaria. You remember I pointed out that the Deuteronomy 28, the blessings for obedience and the, the curses for disobedience. In 2 Kings 6 here, we read of this horrible story. And essentially what we read here is these women in Samaria are fighting and she cries out to the king as she sees him walking along the wall there in Samaria. Asking for help. And what is she upset about? Her and this other lady, it's so bad in Samaria. The food, no food, they've got nothing. They're in dire uh, situation. So bad that they had made a deal with one another. We will boil and eat my son today if tomorrow we can boil and eat your son so that we may live. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, that exact curse is spelled out in Deuteronomy 28 
for curses for disobedience. That, that the siege from the other nations will become so bad that you will eat, basically cannibalize each other, your own children, to live. So that's how bad it's getting. Ben-Hadad is going to be murdered by Hazael, and Hazael will become king like God had told him. Um, we read that in 2 Kings 8, 2 Kings 9. Jehu, again, another king that God had told to appoint over Israel. Jehu was anointed king of Israel by the prophet Elisha. In chapters 9 and 10, Jehu begins... Uh, his God-ordained assault on the house of Ahab. Jehu, we will read in, nine, in, verse, in chapters 9 and 10 of 2 Kings, Jehu is anointed by Elisha, and he begins his assault on the house of Ahab. He assassinates Joram and Ahaziah. He executes Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Chapter 10, he slaughters Ahab's descendants. And finally, he strikes down the prophets of Baal. And in 2 Kings 10, 28-36, we read of Jehu's reign. Now again, Jehu is anointed by God and he rids Israel from the house of Ahab in the, 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 uh, uh, of his line. His house is destroyed. But Jehu was not exactly a great guy. So we read, this is uh, what it says about Jehu. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the, of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Eor, which is by the valley of the, Am Arna, uh, of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all, and all his might are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria, and Samaria 28 years. Jehu, anointed by God, fulfilled what God had appointed for him in getting rid of it. got the same problem that many of the kings, especially of Israel, um, was the sin of Jeroboam. It was idol worship. It was, he didn't turn from those sins. And again, what we just read covered 28 years, it says. There was a, a, a long reign of Jehu in Israel. The pattern that you see in the kings, from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, 
from the split of the, northern, uh, the two kingdoms into the northern kingdom Israel and southern kingdom Judah is you see a pattern of the kings. There are, it's a, it would be far easier for us to cover the kings that were spoken of well in these books. And again, this is over how many years did we talk about? It's nearly 400 years. They didn't have very many good kings, very few good kings. Israel apostatized very rapidly. They went from the split in 930 to, 7, uh, to 722 BC. They were captive, uh, taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah lasts a little longer. You read of the kings of Judah, they had some bad ones as well. But the repeated refrain about the, uh, that you see concerning the kings of Judah is God continue, he con- uh, constantly says, for the sake of my servant David, he's preserving them longer. But eventually they too rebel, apostatize, and they are taken captive in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The point that you see is if you read this book about these kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there's, there's bad kings, there's bad people. There's a lot of wickedness goes on. They have turned ultimately from God. They no longer walk in his ways. There's many stories that we could have, I think Tim would agree, there's so much we could have talked about in here that we just didn't. Uh, there's a King Josiah that was mentioned in these books. And one of the f- uh, significant things that happens during Josiah's reign is the book of the law was discovered in the basement of the temple. What have they been doing? You know, it's like having a church and go, you know what? We've been operating as a church for decades. And one of the guys just was down there in the boiler room and he found a Bible. And he brings it up and let's go and let's, let's see what this says. Maybe we should do this. What have you been doing if you call yourself a church? So what had, it begs the question, what was Israel doing? Well, Israel had turned from God and they were sinning. They were chasing their sin and they were not chasing after God. Their worship had, was idolatrous and, and it had been um, and, and cult-like in very many ways. They went through the motions at best um, um, following and worshiping the Lord. So just to kind of summarize, from, uh, from the great King David to the wise King Solomon, to evil King Jeroboam, to mighty King Jehu, they all point to the fact that they have the stench of sin and as such fall woefully short of God's perfect, righteous standard. They point to a greater king. The king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kings are shepherds. God has, in his prophecy, prophesied over the judgment of the shepherds of Israel. Well, who he is talking about is the kings of Israel. That's who the judgment is going to come against. Human kings lead people into sin and death. Jesus saves his people from sin and gives them eternal life. The kings, the human kings, point to the fact that we need a greater king. And that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do have a greater king. We have the king of kings. 
And it is him who we follow. It is him who we worship. It is his gospel, his good news that we share with people. He is the hope that we have. Uh, the Apostle Peter speaks of we are always, as, as his people, we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. What is our hope? Our hope is Christ. That's all we have. We cannot come before God on our own merit. We cannot. My only plea, because I'm guilty, I'm guilty. My only plea is, plea is Christ. I have no other hope. We have no other hope. But there is no other hope anyone needs. And that should be, um, that, sh- that should be what drives us. We should be the most joyful people that anyone would inter- ever interact with on a daily basis. If you are born again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, joy should come forth from us. Be- because there's nothing, what can this world bring us that are in Christ? Paul says we're more than conquerors. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Nobody. So that's the kind of joy that we should have. I hope this wasn't, I hope I wasn't too confusing, and uh, I hope this, um, I hope you got something out of it. Let's pray, and we'll go. Father, again, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to teach. Father, I pray if there was any confusion on, uh, on my part that you would clear that up. Again, I'm thankful for these students, and I pray that you will continue to work in their lives for the adults that have um, here to uh, continue to walk with these students, uh, continue to minister to them, and that we might leave here and go out into the world and share the love of our King. And it's in his name we ask. Amen.